Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hello and welcome to Article 19. My name is Marty Malloy, president at Tamman, and I am the host for our conversation today. I am surrounded by educators, researchers, mentors, and all-around brilliant folks where we are going to tackle the topic of neurodiversity. What does it mean? How are educators and schools working with kids who are neurodiverse now? And what do we need to be thinking about as workplaces and as a society moving forward? My co-host for this episode is my colleague, my friend, Kristen Waitaki, author, educator, mentor, and regular Tamman contributor. Kristen, hello, my friend. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited that we're doing this. I know, uh, finally. And many more to come, I think, yes. uh, with you as uh, and I joining as co-hosts. Before we introduce our guests, let's take a moment to talk about this topic in sort of broad strokes. At Tamman, we've been talking about neurodiversity for a very long time. We have colleagues who identify as neurodiverse. It has come up as part of other digital accessibility events and talks that we've done. But whenever we've tried to put something together specifically about this topic alone, it has just felt so daunting. And Kristen, I know you and I have talked about this, that this is just a really huge topic for us to tackle. The brain is a really mysterious thing. And, you know, I think when we think about neurodiversity, there are so many different angles to how people read, how they digest information, how they think, you know, how they perceive everything and how they express themselves. And the WCAG, the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, which is a bit of the Bible for digital accessibility, it certainly touches on cognitive issues. And those are often held up in that space as some of the most difficult and unique needs in accessibility. I don't think it's any different, frankly, in education, as it were. But one of the things that people struggle with regularly in the digital accessibility space, and you just mentioned it, Kristen, is reading level. What is the most appropriate reading level for a particular website? You know, if you have something that is academic and research-based and peer-reviewed, well, then that reading level is likely, you know, more appropriately something quite high. Whereas if it's a marketing site or an e-commerce site, what is the appropriate reading level at that level? So we, we definitely have been struggling with this and trying to find some rules and rules of thumb around all this, as with many other professionals in the field. So with that, today we've assembled this group of experts who focus on neurodiversity in educational settings, whether it's in their lesson planning, mentoring colleagues about individual needs, research, and then teaching future teachers and leaders in this space. We're really excited because sometimes industry leads education, but in this case, educators, and specifically what is happening in the laboratories that we call classrooms, I think they are so far out ahead of companies and industry on this issue, and we have a lot to learn from them. So with that, Kristen, do you want to introduce our guests for today's podcast? Sure. It's really hard to figure out a great introductory order, but I'd love to introduce each of you, and if you could talk a little bit about yourselves, that'd be great. So I'll start with one of my very good friends, Dr. Damien LaRock. He's a special education teacher. He teaches this year a third grade self-contained class. And he's also a researcher with a focus on people who have intellectual disabilities or autism spectrum disorders. So thanks, Damien, for coming. 
Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. And yes, I am currently a special education teacher at PS 148, a public elementary school in East Elmhurst, Queens. And I love it here. It's a great community. And we have wonderful students, wonderful staff, fantastic parents. And as Kristen mentioned, um, yes, I'm also a researcher and I have interest in a variety of different topics, but in particular standards-based education for students with disabilities. Thank you, Damien. And next we have Dr. Liz Finnegan, who is professor of education at St. Thomas Aquinas College, which is very well known in the area. And Liz, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you very much, Kristen. So just to tell you a little bit more about myself, my pronouns are she, her. I am a professor of education, but most of the courses I teach are in special education for people that want to become teachers. And some of those pre-service teachers would themselves define themselves as neurodivergent. So that we see that becoming more apparent in the college community. My qualification for being here is probably that I was one of the founding members of the Autism Spectrum Research Committee, which is part of the American Education Research Association. One of our goals was to really consider autism through a neurodiversity lens. Thank you. We'll look forward to hearing more about that when we start the show. Our next guest is Daniela Orkuri, who is a special educator, and she's also a soon-to-be board-certified behavior analyst. And as we were talking about before the show, behavior analysis is pretty well understood in schools and pretty mysterious to the rest of the world. So could you explain a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yes, I totally agree with that statement, actually. Well, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So basically what I will be doing, what I'm being trained in, is to observe and analyze patterns of behavior and develop treatment plans to increase or decrease those patterns of behaviors, depending on what you want to do. But I work in a public elementary school now. It's in Borough Park in Brooklyn. It's a great school. We also have a wonderful staff, wonderful students. I primarily am trained in non verbal students. And my focus was on autism spectrum disorders. And I teach activities of daily living. I teach how to increase their independence with functional skills. So how to brush teeth, how toileting skills, how to use different forms of communication, such as their tablets instead of verbal speech. And um, I love it. I've been doing this since September. But before that, I was a six to one to one teacher for um, seven years. And I loved that too. And I decided to try something different that's working out. And I hope to continue. For the non-educator, I'm going to jump in. This is Marty. Six to one to one. Okay. Daniela, I don't know what that means. I'm yes. sorry. It's so funny because this makes, I think a six to one, it's a 1% of all New York City education classrooms. So it's six students, one classroom paraprofessional or teaching assistant, and usually a behavioral management paraprofessional. Now, it doesn't always quite work like that. So you always have one paraprofessional, at least, which is the classroom that's designated to the classroom. But then usually with early level learners, such as our population of students usually exhibit aggressive behaviors, um, and they are nonverbal, so they need a lot of support. So I would end up with five paraprofessionals, me being the sixth adult in the classrooms. It was always eventful, but I loved it. And so I was a general education teacher for a bit, and I decided, I was like, you know what, this is just not for me. So I went into special education, and I found my niche, and now I love it. That's great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. 
And last but certainly not least is a frequent guest on the pod, Nate Stoffer, who is a middle school teacher who works very, very passionately to promote inclusion in all of its forms. So welcome, Nate. Thanks, Kristen. Hey, everybody. Excited for our conversation. My name is Nate. I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. In the interest of transparency, I am Marty's nephew, which is part of why I'm a frequent guest on the podcast, but I'm also an eighth-year classroom teacher currently teaching in Brooklyn. I've worked in public, private, and charter schools, so I have a good understanding of how students with disabilities are impacted in different areas of the education sector in America in 2023. And in full transparency, I have lots of other relatives who I don't invite on. So, Nate, I think it's about your brilliance and your expertise and what you bring on. So no offense to any of our other members, but no, you're not coming on anytime soon. I'm just kidding. All right. Welcome, everyone. We are so in awe of your expertise and your examples. And so we are going to just dive right in. When we say neurodiversity, what do we mean? And aren't we all neurodiverse in some way or another? Liz, let me kick it off to you first. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, So neurodiversity is a term that's used to describe the infinite variation in neurological functioning with human beings. And using that definition, yes, you're right, Marty, everybody is neurodiverse. Why has it become such an important conversation in the world of disability? So we see that a group of people will define themselves as not neurodiverse because they see themselves as markedly different in the way that their brains function. Some examples of that might be maybe they pay extreme attention to detail and the details are very important to them. Or they have a very rigid, systematic way of approaching a problem and thinking about a problem. On the other end of the spectrum, you might get people that are very creative thinkers and think in terms of many, many possibilities. But they would describe themselves as having a markedly different way of thinking than what we might define as neurotypical or mainstream ways of thinking. That's great. I very much appreciate that definition because I don't think I've ever heard it put quite so succinctly. So can we talk about neurodiversity and neurodiverse thinking and neurodivergent thinking as a monolithic concept? Is this spectrum just too broad even if we narrow it from what Liz was saying about the infinite possibilities to folks that may fall outside of what we would call mainstream or neurotypical, is this something that we should really just, let's just end the podcast here. Damien, what do you think? Is this just too much for us to tackle in one bite? I would say that it's definitely a big topic, but in terms of the definition of neurodiversity, it doesn't necessarily have to be monolithic. It's I think by its nature, not so rigid, because as people have been using the term more, the term has evolved from the original definition put out by Judy Singer in the 1990s. And so I think we have to keep in mind that there is some evolution at play here. With that being said, you know, it's interesting. I thought about this idea of like, well, aren't we all neurodiverse? And while that's certainly true, I think the original intent and Liz touched upon this, it's really to distinguish a group of people who see themselves as markedly different, perhaps because they have a defined disability or disorder, something like ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, dyspraxia, dyslexia, dyscalculia. There are a variety of disabilities and disorders that kind of fit together under this umbrella of neurodiversity. So I think as a term, it can be really, really useful to use that to 
talk about all those people together in one kind of clumped group, but recognize the differences that they have in their thinking and processing compared to neurotypical folks. Sure, that's wonderful. And I am curious how we advance this conversation today and whether or not we kind of jump in and out of some of these different labels and talk a little bit more specifically about one identity group and one, you know, if we're talking about ADHD, for example, if we're talking about autism spectrum disorder, and then we pull out and we consider people who might be epileptic or have dyslexia or some other cognitive and neurodiversity issues. So as we think about being a little bit more precise, and as we think about maybe diving into some of these areas in particular, which I'm anxious to do, Liz, can you talk about that in terms of when it might be more appropriate to be precise and when we want to take sort of a group of perhaps some of these labels or some of these labels is probably the wrong word, some of these diagnoses and separate them out? Because really, are we talking about the same thing when we talk about autism spectrum disorder and say epilepsy? Does that make sense? I think I understand you. So I think as teachers, we do have to recognize that our students are going to learn the material in different ways. So looking at that monolithic definition, which is inclusive of everyone, is important because we do have to think of a wide variation of learning needs. When we talk about students with ADHD, students with autism, students with epilepsy, is it fair to put them all in the same group and call them neurodiverse? That's a good question because there are very clear differences in their diagnosis and they have a very clear different set of needs, whether it's medical or educational or whether it's for functioning in the real life. The term, Damien mentioned Judy Singer, and she herself has autism. So she is an Australian woman who really came up with the term to describe herself as neurodiverse because she found there really wasn't a categorical word out there in society to describe her. So she has autism, but she didn't want to say I'm autistic because that has certain connotations. She didn't want to say she had a disability because she really didn't perceive herself as being disabled because she was fully functioning in society. So how does she describe her different patterns of thinking? So she came up with the term neurodiverse, almost as a social political class of thinking. It's almost like gender or almost like race. Now, here we are, neurodiverse. And then if you want to get those different people together with ADHD, epilepsy, dyslexia, yes, then it makes sense because then we can group ourselves together and advocate for ourselves as one body. Wow. Wow. That's great. I am mind blown. Whatever that looks like to you, that is very, very interesting. You bring up social political. And Kristen, you and I were talking a little bit about this, that especially more recently, sort of in the 2000s and beyond, that autism seems to have sort of taken up the air in the room. And I'm curious that when people are talking about autism, one, is that true in your worlds? And two, are people using the term autism because they aren't sure what else to say when we think about intellectual disabilities or other neurodivergent ways of thinking? Where does sort of neurodiversity and autism as a sociopolitical concept, where do they begin and end? That's such a huge question. I mean, there are books about it, but it's interesting to think of the students that I work with. They're blind. Some of them have additional disabilities or they are on the autism spectrum. And I think it's always been really fascinating. I think that autism can 
have a danger of being sort of a catch-all term for, you know, these random behaviors that don't fit into the social norms or patterns. But at the same time, people with autism are working really hard to promote their worlds as being no less legitimate than what might be considered the world to someone who doesn't have autism. And I think that also falls into that, you know, the idea of there used to be Asperger's syndrome as sort of a, it being perceived as kind of a classist thing as people who could possibly fit better into society than others. And I think we're moving away from that. And so what are we moving toward? And I think that the study of autism is just really fascinating, constantly changing, and people with autism are working hard to define themselves and not just have other people define them. So I think that's always been fascinating. But when we talk about all of this, are we doing people a disservice when we lump them together? How does that even work? It's so hard to figure all that out. I want to bring Daniela and Damien into this because I think some of the work that you both have done in research specifically are working with individuals with intellectual disabilities. When we say autism spectrum disorder, one, is that the same as saying someone has an intellectual disability? That's sort of question one. Question two would be, if there is a difference, how big is this spectrum and where do we draw the lines with the types of young people that you work with and that you've been working with? I primarily work with students with autism spectrum disorders. I have never worked with students with intellectual disabilities, but just like anything else, there's a very big range. With autism, especially, you're going from an early range to a higher range. And so it's very, very broad. It's very diverse. And basically the way that my colleagues and I see it at works, it's it's like a processing disorder. And it's the way that people process information and the way that they process it and then, you know, the output of that information. And so it's difficult to answer because I feel like Every child that I teach is extremely different. There are never, ever two students that are exactly the same. And that's what makes them unique and special. But I also feel that way about typically developing students as well. You know, there are similarities, but no two are ever the same. And so we embrace these differences. We acknowledge them. We embrace them. And that's why our curriculum and what we teach is you have to modify it to suit every child. Nate? Danielle and Kristen's comments have been sparking a lot of thoughts for me. And I see like an analogous situation within the queer community. I identify as a gay man. And I've had a lot of comments or in conversations with my friends who are also members of the community about why we create that lump term of queer when we know that the experiences of a trans woman in our country are very different than the experiences of a gay man. And ultimately, I think what it comes down to, and I think this is also true for the neurodiversity movement, is language is creating spaces that haven't been built in the society around us so that people can find the camaraderie that they need in order to advocate for themselves and each other. So we do need both sets of labels. I need to be able to identify myself as a gay man, but I also need to be able to identify myself with the queer movement in order to understand the history I inherit as a member of that community and the responsibility I take on as a member of that community for those who don't carry privilege in other areas of their social identity that I do. And I think that's also true in the neurodiversity movement. We know not every category of non-neurotypical student has the same 
level of challenge in different subject fields or the same way that content is presented to them, but we need to be able to advocate across the community in order to really make the change that we need to the systems that we are all a part of. And Marty, you mentioned also, you asked the question, are autism spectrum disorder and intellectual disability the same thing? The simple answer to that, I guess, is no. But going to the point about the broader spectrum, so according to the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, there are defined categories for classifying students when giving them individualized education programs. So a child can have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder or a totally separate diagnosis, distinct diagnosis of intellectual disability. And you can have people who are on the autism spectrum who don't have an intellectual disability. But I think to piggyback on what Daniela was saying, the spectrum is very broad in part because there is a lot of overlap. There are a lot of people who are both autistic and have an intellectual disability. And there are even other disabilities that come into play sometimes. You might have a student who has multiple disabilities. They might have autism. They might have an intellectual disability and a speech and language impairment. So it gets difficult because things don't always fit into these very nice, neat boxes. There tends to be a lot of overlap. But in terms of are ASD, autism spectrum disorder, and intellectual disability the same thing? No, they're not. Yeah, I'm learning so much right now, very, very fast. I'm trying to process all of it. I think, Daniela, when you mentioned that it's about processing and people processing things differently, that definitely resonated with me. Nate, I think when you talked about you know, and we've talked about this on previous podcasts as well around language and the importance of language and creating spaces. And we'll get to this more when we talk about sort of implications for workplaces and society and sort of the future for these young people and, and teachers who are going to continue to work with them. But I think there's this stop, start, catch up. Oh, here we are. Oh, I'm trying to understand. And, and I think people are getting inputs from a lot of different places for themselves as they try to figure some of this stuff out when they are not steeped in the education and the expertise that all of you are. So I just really appreciate all that. And this is wonderful. It does really, and I think this is an important question that we try to think about and ask in a number of our topics on Article 19, which is who are we leaving out? So we talked about, you know, neurodiversity being typically the infinite number of ways in which people think and process information. But when we dive into it, we've found that there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of specific things. And then we can talk about specific diagnoses and things like that. Is there anyone who we're not talking about that we ought to be talking about when we talk with this in mind and these kinds of conversations in mind? If I could jump in here, you know, I think Liz hit the nail on the head at the beginning when she defined neurodiversity for us all and named that it is at once all-encompassing, but also very specific to individuals who identify as neurodiverse. I think where we should be talking is less than about who is left out of the category neurodiverse, because as we've mentioned, that could cover everyone in the whole world, and more about the intersections of ability and other parts of someone's identity, right? So I'm speaking as an educator who's working in a system that is built on segregation and a history of eugenics. And for many students who have intersecting marginalized identities, be they from a lower socioeconomic status or students of color, oftentimes they may not have either the access or 
be identified as having a disability because of other assumptions that are made about them due to other parts of their identity. So depending on the level of access they have to resources, they may not get the resources they need, even though they are legally entitled to them. Or if they're in a classroom with a teacher who views them for one lens of their identity that's visible and doesn't view the invisible identity of their abilities or their disabilities, they may be categorized for what the teacher sees and not for what they're actually carrying. So I think the conversation needs to be broadened less so to encompass more people in terms of neurodiversity, but to think about for each person, how does our neurodiversity intersect with other parts of who we are? And what does that mean for us when we enter a space such as a classroom? Awesome. I mean, that's a very wonderful sort of drop the pencil moment. I really do appreciate that. So, you know, Nate and Damien, if I can kind of direct this to both of you, because I think you've introduced this topic, Nate, and building off of what Damien said in terms of co-occurring or multiple diagnoses, what are some of the struggles within the traditional education system to accommodate our learners? And what can we do to address some of these challenges? Damien, why don't I start with you? Okay. So before addressing struggles, I think this is a good place to take a historical perspective and look at how far we've come, actually, because Nate mentioned the history of eugenics. And in general, the history for people with disabilities in the United States of America and in the world has been traumatic and difficult. And, you know, in the United States, really the whole idea of even having special education is relatively new. A lot of it developed as soon as the 1970s. So we're really, you know, kind of only 50 years into this. So I think it's important to mention, like, we've come a long way. And access to education for people with disabilities has improved dramatically. Rights for people with disabilities have improved. With that all being said, there's absolutely a lot more work to be done. And there certainly are struggles. As a classroom teacher, I would say that one thing that I perceive in my day-to-day work as a special educator is struggling to differentiate instruction. In my graduate school courses, in my teacher preparation courses, we learn so much about differentiating our lessons for students who have a variety of needs. In practice, I have to say that's actually a really difficult thing to do. And I've been teaching for 16 years. I don't consider myself a master at differentiating instruction, even after 16 years. I've worked with a whole variety of colleagues who have shared with me that they also struggle in this area. But the ideal situation is to be able to create an educational system where what we teach in schools is fully accessible and fully differentiated for a variety of learners. Putting that into practice is, I think, in 2023, a struggle for many teachers. I just want to build off what Damien just said. He's obviously a more experienced educator than I am in my young career, but I was being educated to become a teacher in sort of the latter years of No Child Left Behind. And for those who are unfamiliar with that set of policies that shaped American education at the start of the 21st century, school resources, school funding was tied to the performance of individual students at those schools. And so students with disabilities were often met with punitive or disciplinary responses if they underperformed the academic standards that they were being held to because the schools had a vested interest in looking like students were doing really well. And so, you know, that wasn't the intent of the policy, but in many communities, particularly under-resourced communities, that was the impact of those policies, which is part of why we don't have those policies anymore. 
Liz, let me go ahead and bring you in off of uh, the policy discussion there and the resource discussion that Nate was just alluding to. In terms of policy and discipline-specific views in education, disability is very much uh, defined by special education needs in schools. And so we often think, oh, special education is for students with disabilities. But that's not always the case. Because in order to be eligible for special education, you do have to be failing. Your disability does have to affect your educational progress. So if it is not affecting your educational progress and you're doing well in school, where do you get those needs met? And so one group of neurodiverse learners that is kind of affected by this crack in the system is students with anxiety disorders. Very often, part of the way of thinking is that they're perfectionists, they have to do everything on time, they have to follow the rules and comply with the expectations of the assignments. So they do well in school or well enough. But at the same time, their anxiety is being internalized and that can cause a lot of mental health issues down the road. And that's one area I think is a challenge for schools. And we do right now see a lot of talk about mental health awareness in schools. You just opened up a whole other episode for us to talk about is mental health in schools. Daniela, I know you want to jump in here too. Yes, I wanted to piggyback off of what Damien had said before about differentiation in the classroom and how challenging it is. And yes, it is because in my career with six students, you would have to differentiate instruction for students with comorbidities. And they had a presence of two disabilities. And you'd have one student who had an autism spectrum disorder alongside ADHD or anxiety. And then you'd have another student with Williams syndrome and also autism. And so you have to prepare. It was really important in a classroom like that to delegate specific responsibilities and roles to the assistants. So that's also very important. And for that home to school connection, for that communication with parents and to bring them in and kind of always keep them abreast of what is going on in the classroom and how they can bring that into the home. Because especially with students with disabilities, they regress. And so keeping everybody on the same page, that's super important. So yes, it is challenging, but I think you have to all give yourselves a pat on the back because I think it's pretty difficult to run a classroom when you are trying to target all of these different goals. So for each student, all these individual goals. So what are some strategies that teachers use to basically balance all of that, to balance the needs of individuals against the needs of the group, you know, the class as a community, or just, you know, the group of students? So basically, we don't attend to whole group learning in our classrooms. We are very individualized. And so we try to target small groups or one-on-one teaching because you can have a student who is a visual learner and then another student who is a tactile learner or an auditory learner. So we never really bring them into a whole group setting. And then we use a special type of curriculum. So for instance, we use ABLES, and that is the assessment of a basic language and learning skills. And so we assess them using this tool and then we pull from it to develop individualized goals. And so in our teaching, we address those goals and those goals specifically. So it is important to be as individualized as possible. Would you say that's true, Damien, in your class too? Or is it a little different? It is a little different. I would say, so over the years I've taught 
in both self-contained special education classes that function in a similar way to what Daniela just just described. But I've also taught in ICT classes, which are integrated co-teaching classes, essentially inclusion classes. There are two teachers, a general education teacher and a special education teacher working side by side. And we have a mix of students with and without disabilities. I would say from my experience, Particularly with the integrated co-teaching classes, there is more time dedicated to whole group instruction. And there's a lot that can, a lot of educational content and a lot of teaching skills that can be delivered successfully to the whole group. When you start to have more and more students with particular needs, then the small group instruction, as Daniela mentioned, becomes more and more important. I would say that's even the case in a general education classroom. There's always going to be a need to have small group instruction to target the specific needs of individual and small groups of learners. Daniela mentioned working with a variety of professionals in her classroom. And going back to differentiation, I just want to mention, I feel like one of the ways that I've been able to differentiate the most successfully is when I've had a really strong team of teachers to collaborate with. So differentiation as a single teacher with a large group of students or even a small group of students can be really daunting. But working together with a team of dedicated colleagues who share resources is a life changer. And I think in the years that I could say I did my my best job at differentiation, it was really not because of anything that I did specifically. It was because I was part of a really great team. And so when that happens, I think it can be really easy to meet the needs of individual students when that's necessary in a classroom, but then also just have like high quality whole group instruction for all the kids at the same time. How do you feel about that, Nate, in your teaching situation? Yeah, Damien, I was going to share some of the same thoughts that you just did. I think like the most effective work I've been able to do has been when I am not the only teacher in the room. The fact is like currently I'm teaching at an independent school where my class size is 16 and that makes it a lot easier for me to make sure every kid is seen by me every day and I have my eyes on all of their work. But the school I came from last year, I had 50 students that I saw every day and of those 50, at least 20 were on IEPs and those were only the students who had, you know, gone through the process of getting an IEP. There were other students who their families didn't consent to the process, or we were in the early stages of collecting data on them, but we didn't yet have a document to tell us how to properly accommodate our our work for them. So I think the challenge is when you look at the scale of classrooms, particularly in under-resourced public schools in our country right now, the challenge becomes exponentially greater for the adult or the adults who are in the room to provide the sort of individualized support that we're talking about, while also meeting the least restrictive environment criteria that the IDEA has set out for American public ed. So one of the things that I'm thinking about, Kristen, and I don't know if this is crossing your mind as well, is as as I'm listening to all of you talk, I'm obviously coming at it from a very different perspective. And I'm thinking about teamwork and I'm thinking about characteristics. And actually, Liz, I want to kind of point this to you. And this isn't a question that we had kind of thought about ahead of time. But as you are looking and as you are preparing teachers to go into these classrooms, I am struck by the strength of mental health necessary for a teacher to go in and do this day in and day out and see frustrations and kind of keep moving forward. Frustrations, whether it's I'm not good enough as I want to be, you know, the standard that they're setting for themselves or whatnot, the patience they need. Basically, what I'm asking is how do you turn educators into Daniela, Damien, and Nate is really what I want to know. 
So first of all, we're very honest about the fact that we are looking for people that are going to go into inclusive and diverse classrooms for the most part. So they should expect their students to have very different ways of thinking, very different backgrounds, different interests, different preferences. Then we also, in addition to the interpersonal characteristics like patience, learning collaboration skills, so they can work well with colleagues. We also want them to be realistic about understanding how long it's going to take to become a master teacher. So one of the things that I'm surprised that hasn't been mentioned yet is universal design for learning, which is a way for designing curriculum. And that involves presenting materials in different ways, giving students different ways to express them, their learning, and also different ways to engage in learning. So we very much emphasize that. However, to really master that, even in one subject area, can take three or four years because you're developing one unit at a time for a very, very group of students And so just to collect the materials, find the resources, figure out the different alternatives that you're going to make available to students is very labor intensive and to pace yourself in order to do that. So you mentioned labor intensive. And again, I'm kind of thinking of my own world, right, where we talk about um, audio descriptions as something that is very labor intensive or anything that we are producing from a video perspective can be much more labor intensive than sort of from a coding and web side of things. And I'm struck thinking about our educators on the call here that one, when you talk about universal design for learning, or even this level of differentiation, and I really put this up to any of the three of you, Daniela, Damien, or Nate, we already know that your schools are under-resourced. And I'm putting that out there as my opinion. I feel like schools are under-resourced, period. We should put more resources in schools. But the amount of just person hours it takes to properly prepare and support some of the young folks that you're working with, I mean, we're talking about 12-hour days or more. How can we do this realistically at scale where we're not going to burn out before we ever become, as Liz said, the master teachers that they may be? Well, I can give you an example of what labor intensive looks like. So I do remember way back in my teaching days, we had a novel for the fourth grade, and it was really very challenging for some of my students who were still learning to read. And so I remember recording it all. It was on the cassette on that time, so they could listen to it on cassette and also making an abbreviated version of this book as well for those students that wanted to be able to access it through reading. And that's, you know, hours of work to do that. And so, yes, I'm very relieved when we do that book the following year and the following year and the following year, because now I have that material for three years. I think it becomes challenging when there are so many other changes in curriculum that can you keep up with the curriculum? And I think then that's when you have to say, well, there are certain topics like in science, we do states of matter. That's probably going to come up year after year. So that's the area where I would put my labor and my work into if I was going to create all these different options. Got it. Stability matters. Nate and then Daniela. Yeah. Another big one I have to say would be just having strong administration who will set a vision for your team as to how exactly you want to approach special education within your community and making sure that those administrators have their eyes on what the ground looks like in the classrooms in their buildings, right? So seeing what the work is that each individual is taking on, acknowledging that work, acknowledging the shortcomings as well as the blossoms that come from it, 
So the other important point I would say is making sure those administrators are willing to include families in these conversations and making sure that families are, you know, understanding of the positive intent of the educators in the school and that we are all on the same team in supporting young people because many families across all lines of identity carry stigma around the idea of disability. And we need to be breaking that down for all families because whether or not one family's individual child is neurodiverse, they will be in a class with other children who are, and we all need to be able to come in and have those conversations openly and frankly so we can support one another in our learning communities. So not only are we undersourced, but we're also understaffed. And I don't know if it's the case with non-District 75 schools in New York City, but we have very difficult time finding, especially like if one of us is absent or, you know, paraprofessional or teacher, it's hard to find somebody that will come in and take over. And something that's not mentioned is the amount of money it takes. So we receive funds, we receive $250 in funds every year. It's called Teacher's Choice by the Department of Education, but it never covers fully the things that we need. Our population of students require a hands-on interactive learning materials, and it's super expensive. So I end up spending so much more than that. And I think it's important to say that, you know, we definitely need some more resources like that. Thank you for that. Damien, I want to give you room if you had anything you wanted to add to this question. Yeah, one thing that I was thinking about when Liz was speaking, so she was talking about this idea of how important stability is from year to year. And I think to run a school well, to have very well implemented curriculum, stability is important in so many ways. Liz mentioned like the turnover of programs. Over my 16 years working at PS 148, we've had a variety of different reading programs come in and out, several math programs. And so when teachers invest a lot of time into creating resources, and then the program changes, it can be very frustrating. At the same time, To Daniela's point, staff come in and out. So there are people who create resources and then may or may not share them before they're out to a different school for a different reason. They might be excessed, they might retire. And so having stability is really important. And then from just a personal perspective, over my time working at PS148, I've shifted around from grade to grade. So I've taught first, second, third, fourth, and fifth. And there have been moments where I've been, you know, like a fourth grade teacher for three years in a row. And I'm like, ah, I'm finally getting good at this. And then, you know, I find out like next year I'm teaching second, which when that happens, it's always a bit difficult. Now that time has passed, I feel like it's been a blessing because I understand where kids are coming from and where they need to go. And right now I'm right in the middle. I'm in third grade. So this is like a sweet spot. Yeah, I just want to emphasize the importance of stability. And I also was thinking as Liz was speaking about how the pandemic has recently affected things. So one interesting thing that I found is during the pandemic, everything was very tumultuous. Teachers went remote within a week (laughs) and teachers were really forced to digitize all of their materials and transfer the teaching that they were doing in person in a classroom to an online platform like Google Classroom. It was incredibly difficult at the beginning of the pandemic. But I have to say now teachers have this whole new set of skills and are much more prepared to differentiate when it comes to providing digital resources, and then making things accessible through those 
platforms. So I'll give an example. Now at my school, post-pandemic, one of the ways that we're expanding access to test prep lessons is the teachers are doing Zoom sessions during our Tuesday afternoon parent engagement time and then occasionally in the evening. So this is sort of like oftentimes outside of the regular school hours. And then we're recording the lessons and posting them on Google Classroom for students and their parents to access whenever they can. Daniela mentioned before the importance of the parent home connection. And so like this has been a really good thing for our school because now that we have materials that are accessible, not only to students digitally, but to parents after hours, like it's added, I think, a really great way of enhancing education that nobody even thought of before the pandemic and before the idea of like doing Zoom recordings of lessons online that can be accessed at a later time. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Could I jump in and, and build off Damien's first comment too? Because connecting back also to what I had shared earlier about families and the importance of involving them in these conversations, I think it's really important to think about how we are sharing knowledge about individual students from grade to grade. So, you know, Damien talked about shifting from one grade to another, and you may end up having the same student more than one year in a row, which means that some of that legwork of getting to know that child and not only understanding their IEP, but then seeing what specific support that kid is going to respond best to, that can get lost when the kid transfers to another school or even within the same school, but to a different building or a different hallway. So thinking within schools about how we're streamlining communications to ensure that those supports are being communicated from one educator to another can really lower the bar at the beginning of the year for getting a whole new group of kiddos in your room to be able to jump right into your work with them. Awesome. I think I need a break. Uh, because this has been incredible. There are, for our listeners at least, and I hope that they are as equally as amazed and engaged as I am, I want to just tease out a couple of things that I've been hearing, some themes that have been coming up with the group here. One is this idea of differentiation and individualization. So I, I think that's really important. We've just been talking about stability and consistency. Another is teamwork. And finally, sort of touching a little bit towards the end here on community versus isolation. I don't know if that's the right versus, but all of these things that all of you are talking about, I mean, it feels very education heavy, right? It feels very education specific. But from my perspective, and I hope for many of our listeners who are not in schools and not educators, that they're seeing that there are direct parallels to the workplace in all of these different ways. And that's the stuff that I kind of want to begin to tease out a little bit more, have some more conversation with in our next segment when we talk a little bit about society. Before I do, though, Kristen, is there anything that we missed that we really want to get to before we move on in the conversation at all? Oh, my gosh. Of course. Yes. So go uh, for it. Absolutely. There, there always is. But there's too much to talk about. Every comment could evolve into paragraphs and paragraphs. Anyway, what are some initiatives that you've all noticed specifically in New York, basically since the pandemic has started and is kind of petering out and evolving itself for recognizing neurodiversity and really addressing it in a more organic way? So one really concrete way that I think New York City has addressed this issue is Mayor Eric Adams, who has talked about being dyslexic himself, really pushed for universal dyslexia screening in schools. 
And I have to say that as a New York City public school teacher, I have seen the impact of this. Months after he took office, all New York City public school teachers were trained in being able to better identify students who may have dyslexia. And we also have started to do the screening within our schools, specifically with a program called Acadians. And so I think raising awareness about the idea of having students with dyslexia, which is part of this whole broader theme of neurodiversity in our classrooms, we definitely have way more awareness now than we did pre-pandemic, pre the election of our current mayor. So that's a concrete example of something that's pretty recent in New York City history. Is it too recent to know whether or not the numbers of students who identify with dyslexia have really risen? Or is it just that there are, you know, so has, has that helped? And do we find that, oh my gosh, you know, to the resource question, sort of like, wow, we've really been missing the boat here. Or is that just too early to tell right now? I think it is a little bit still too early to tell. I haven't heard any statistics about any recent numbers, but I do know that all New York City public school teachers have been trained. We're currently doing screenings. There's much better awareness in general of the idea that whether we know it or not, we have students with dyslexia in our classrooms. You know, Nate, you had earlier brought up this idea of stigma and disabilities. I think, Liz, you mentioned, we have a bunch of us have mentioned it, but dyslexia, it's interesting that there's sort of a push with dyslexia in particular, because I think there's been a lot of information over the years around very, very successful people, CEOs, entrepreneurs, billionaires with dyslexia, specifically because of some of the coping mechanisms that they needed to move their way through educational systems and life are the same sorts of transferable skills that make them incredibly successful, you know, down the road. And so I think it's an interesting disability to kind of key in on it first to help people understand that you may have a disability, it does not necessarily limit future choices. Let's figure out ways in which we can use your coping mechanisms, teach you new skills, build up your strengths in other areas, et cetera, that can allow you to be moving forward in your life. I don't know if there's any other examples of kind of zeroing in to try to identify whether if you could do the same thing, the same initiative with ADHD or with autism spectrum disorder or with et cetera, to be able to have IEPs for young people across the spectrum. Liz? Yes, so autism has been addressed by New York State Education Department. And initially, it's about 20 years ago, we made it a requirement for all pre-service teachers to have some training in autism. Now, compared to what Daniela knows, this is very, very like surface knowledge, just so that, you know, teachers do have an awareness of what autism is and what it exists. And New York State still does have an autism spectrum disorder advisory board. And I just checked to see what they've been up to recently. And they are moving with the times. They had a contest for a flag to represent neurodiversity. And the neurodiversity symbol is a horizontal infinity sign. And so now they have a flag for that in New York State. And you can also buy it on Etsy if you're so inclined. So and I definitely try to keep up with the times here. Kristen. Yes. I want to talk about IEPs. Is that too big? To t- should, should we go into IEPs a little bit? Because we've been talking about individualization. We've been talking about, you know, Nate has brought up parents and et cetera. Should we talk about it or should we wait till the next segment? Yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah, I think it's good to kind of get an explanation about what are IEPs for those who are not in the education space day in and day out? Which students benefit most from these? 
individualized education programs, what is, you know, which students are left out of them and how are those students addressed? So what is an IEP? Can someone give us a quick 30 second definition of what the heck an IEP is? Sure. An IEP is an individualized education program, and it's a document that is co-created with a team of stakeholders in a particular child's life, the parents, guardians, all of the child's teachers and related service providers. And basically, it's a document that lays out the special education services that the child should receive and their individual goals to help them meet their maximum potential towards grade level standards. It doesn't necessarily only have to focus on academic standards. The goals can also include, as Daniela mentioned before, she works with students who need a lot of functional skills. It can include goals towards life skills. And the IEP specifically is given to students who have one of 13 disability categories as defined by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Okay, so... I may think that my child should have an IEP, but if it doesn't fall into one of those 13 categories, I'm out of luck. From like a legal perspective, I would say so. But if you have dedicated teachers who are aware of the idea of providing universal design for learning in their classrooms, that they might have children with dyslexia or other forms of neurodiversity, then, you know, certainly, hopefully, parents can talk to those teachers and say like, hey, my child may need accommodations or modifications because of their differences. So hopefully in that sense, it could be addressed, but from a legal perspective, in order to receive services, and also in regard to funding that goes along with those services, a child has to have a diagnosis that fits into one of 13 disability categories. Gotcha. Daniela. Damien, that was great. That was a good explanation. Just to add off of that, you know, this document is so important because it travels with the student year after year after year. And uh, as we had said before, you know, there are rotating staff members and professionals that are going to work with the student. And that is their leading document because it might also contain their behavior intervention plan and their functional behavior analysis. And, you know, it also includes if they are receiving occupational therapy services, speech services, if they are entitled to a bus paraprofessional, their strengths, their weaknesses in academics, physical, social development and any modifications that they make for in terms of learning and state exams or if they are alternate assessment. So it's super important to read the document and the leading members are typically the parents. And also if the student is able to, they should and could have a voice in the development of the IEP. So every time I acquire a new student, I always take the time to read it very carefully so that I can have a basis. But with that said, the IEP will give you the background information, but, you know, I've had several teachers in our discussion and common planning and they're like, you know, I read the IEP, but I don't really see it. It doesn't really act like that with me or, you know, oh, he did something different than what it said. And I'm always like, you know what? It's kind of like the rapport that you establish with the students and the relationship that you build. And if you don't pair and you don't acquire like instructional control, the document is not going to serve much of a purpose. So it also depends on that individualized relationship that that you have with your students. Oh, yeah, totally. I could see that. I mean, it's so important to me when I'm working on IEPs to capture the story of the student. But then even when I do it, and even when I make it very long, which, you know, some people hate, it still never will capture fully the student, which is frustrating. 
and also good because a student should never be sort of the sum of their legal documents, you know? They should always be a person. And just to add, you know, students' behaviors change uh, very often. Their needs, their interests, their desires, as do ours. Although the IEP will change, the basis of it is so useful to study and to take note of. Liz? You also asked, what about those students that don't qualify for an IEP? What happens to them? So we do have provision under the Rehabilitation Act for what we call a 504 plan. So, for example, if you're a student with ADHD who is doing well academically, getting good grades, but still needs accommodations, maybe you need to be your, do your testing in a separate setting or take frequent breaks, you can get accommodations under a 504 plan. The other big thing, which is actually law in New York State, is a system called response to intervention. So if a teacher in a general education setting sees that a student is struggling, they are responsible for intervening and coming up with maybe another strategy or another resource to help that child succeed. They may also be able to call on the support of special education teachers or basic skills teachers. They may not be alone on this, but it is a requirement that if gender teachers see that a student is struggling, that they identify their needs and address it. That's good news, and they're not sort of ignored. Yeah. Nate? Yeah. Just building off Liz's comment there, I also want to acknowledge on like a practical level in my experience, right? I brought up already the importance of families and the importance of community partnership. And part of why I say that is, Both IEPs and 504 plans do require parent or guardian consent to evaluate the child and to provide the services. Now, you know, educators can provide accommodations that they feel are appropriate, but in order for that to be documented, which as Daniela mentioned, is so important for educators, you know, to share knowledge across classrooms, you know, you need the family to be partnered. And in a lot of cases, several students that I have worked with, we haven't been able to see the process all the way through because we've lacked family support, which is part of why we need to work on destigmatizing these conversations and making it clear that IEPs are not labeling children as something. They are there to provide and ensure that legal supports are being offered in every classroom that child enters. And it's to hold the educators accountable to make sure they are aware of those child's disabilities and that they know what what accommodations that child is entitled to in order to support their learning. When does the IEP and 504 plan, when does that stop following them? Is it high school, college, workplace? Because frankly, from an HR perspective, I would really love to know someone's IEP, like behavioral support plan and individualization, if I could make their lives better in work, wouldn't that be great? I'm someone who needs more time on a test. You don't get high stakes deadlines. Let's make sure that we give you work that allows you to do your best. So when does it end? IEPs come with specific goals that are set by the team for the student to reach to show that the accommodations are working. And so they're tested throughout the year to see their progress toward those goals. If they reach those goals, maybe their goals will change during the next IEP cycle. So students could phase out of an IEP if they start to show progress that they weren't showing before. If not, it'll follow them all the way, you know, through their public education experience. But, you know, many students may transfer from a public school to a private school. And in that process, the documents may get lost. I've, I've taught students both in public schools and at my current independent school where their IEPs they had at one point, and it didn't for one reason or another end up 
in their file when they ended up at the new school. So it's not a perfect system and it is very much driven by people. And so it is fallible, unfortunately. And as for your second point, Marty, about like, why can't it follow us all the way through our lives? I think something that worries me would be that I've had families come up to me and say part of why they didn't share their students' IEP when they applied to an independent school is they were worried about the admissions committee at an independent school stigmatizing their child for having a disability, which of course, you know, is illegal. They shouldn't be doing doing that, but there's no way to prove that intent. And so many families may choose not to hold on to it. And I think the same concerns could come up in the professional sphere if suddenly a job application required you to disclose whether you had an IP as well. So obviously policies are all in theory well-intended, but they are applied by people in different levels with different levels of education and experience around the issue of disability and working with people with disabilities. And so without the ability to prove intent, it's really hard to say that those are going to be followed the way they're intended to be. And then, um, you know, the IEP will typically phase out after the student leaves their secondary school. You know, if they stay in public school or special education program the whole way through, the document will not really follow them to any post-secondary experience. So whether that means college or employment, that's usually when the document phases out. And again, kind of for those same reasons. And even when you get to college, the whole disability identification process changes from IDEA to, you know, it falls under ADA instead. And there are slight differences to the ways those are implemented. And the student has a lot more power you know, are theoretically are more at the center of disclosing their disability or they don't have to. And there are pros and cons to that change. And to Nate's other point about discrimination, you've written about that in some of the content at Tamaninc.com, some of the blogs that you've written around the fact that disabilities are still something that is very hard to prove that someone wasn't discriminating against you when you walk in and you're seen as blind or deaf or what, what disability you may present with. Holy smokes, just so much more. And again, you know, the the themes for me, just kind of keeping pulling themes out on top of the ones I already mentioned, just this idea of stigma and awareness that came up a bunch of times and that relationships matter. All of the things that you're talking about, I can't stress this enough with all of you. And where I really want to take this conversation again, because most of our listeners are not educators necessarily, although after this one, we may have a lot more, is the idea that all of these things that you're doing, both as professionals, but also with your young people, I think there are direct implications in society and things that we need to kind of work on and, and do more of. So I am so grateful to all of you. Thank you to Damian LaRock, Nate Stoffer, Liz Finnegan, Daniela Akruri. I appreciate all of you spending time with us today and sharing your insights. This was really great. To our listeners, this was such a great conversation. We weren't able to get to everything. So please be on the lookout for part two of this conversation where we get into more societal and workplace intersections with neurodiversity. If you like what you heard, or if you disagreed with something you heard, let us know and help us grow the pod. Give us five stars and a good review wherever you're listening today. You can also find us across all social media at Tamanink and through our website, Tamanink.com. That's T-A-M-M-A-N-I-N-C.com. There you'll find all of our thought leadership on things digital accessibility, company culture, and more. You can also sign up for our newsletter so you never miss a beat with us. Thank you so much for listening.